series four, episode seven of Raw Talent, we are exploring how psychology can make fashion better with Professor Carolyn Mayer, author of The Psychology of Fashion. Carolyn Mayer is a chartered psychologist and fellow of the British Psychological Society. Her professional experience spans consultancy, academia, and early careers in visual merchandising, graphic design, dressmaking, and portraiture. During her 20 years in academia, she was promoted to full professorship at two universities and established the psychology department at the University of the Arts London, UAL, pioneering the world's first psychology for fashion master's degrees, both MA and Master of Science. Carolyn left academia in 2017 and established her consultancy and wrote a book, The Psychology of Fashion, published in 2018. In the first of a three-part series, we are going to explore why the psychology of fashion matters and its impact on society and the industry. Hi, Carolyn. Good morning. Welcome to Raw Talent. We have a beautiful sunny morning after two days of the monsoon season. It's lovely to see you. Oh, thank you. It's great to be here. Thank you very much. So we're going to jump straight in and start to explore the psychology of fashion, which I find fascinating. This unique skill set unites a rare combination of expertise that kind of harnesses an aptitude to direct and influence positive change is kind of a summary of what you do. In your early career, you recognise the need to apply the scientific study of human behaviour to the fashion industry, paving the way for fashion psychology, which has been adopted by stylists, businesses, individuals and psychologists. Jumping into the, the here and now of our increasingly analytical world where the algorithm rules, is there a vital balance to be achieved in protecting the integrity of creativity? Oh, that's a great question, Fiona. And what a way to start. From my perspective, I see creativity as a psychological concept, as something that happens in the brain, not rather than something that happens in the fingers. So I believe by understanding human behavior. We can not only protect the integrity of creativity, but we can enable it in people who are fearful of being creative or who don't describe themselves as creatives. So in my experience in the fashion industry and in fashion education, I found a divide between people who describe themselves as creatives and people who describe themselves as something else. And by doing that, they say they're not creative. But when we identify issues in the fashion industry, for example, when we identify opportunities to make a positive change, then we're being creative as well. So for me, it's not just about making. It's about thinking. Creativity comes from thinking and it's executed through making, whether that's physical or structural in the brain. What a great question to start with. Yeah, I mean, it makes me think of um, something that always occurs to me, which is thoughts are things, words have wings, and thoughts are things. And from a thought, you create. Whether you create in words, whether you create in actions, there are different ways to be creative, and they all apply to the fashion industry. Absolutely. Yeah, I love that saying. Thoughts are things, words words have wings. We can thank Mike Dooley for that. He is a uh, an influential speaker 
and uh, he focuses on helping people live their best ever lives, really. And he's someone I I love his work and I find it very relevant to, it's relevant to everybody from any walk of life, Mm. but it's it's good to start the day with a little inspiration and he's very good at that. So yeah, thoughts are things, words have wings. Um, Be careful what you choose. (laughs) Oh, so true. Yeah, absolutely. I love the reflections you share with Refinery29 on the rise of comfortable clothing, which has been amplified by the pandemic, of course, and how look and feel have become equally important. Our lifestyles are driving fashion and brands and brands are responding to meet our needs like never before. What are your thoughts on this? Well, I think the the pandemic has accelerated change in multiple ways. So it's accelerated the advances we were seeing in technology, the application and use of technology by, you know, everybody and consumers obviously included in that. So where people were not so engaged with online shopping, communication, work, they had to be. So this was a forced change that happened. And also in the pandemic, it accelerated our our changes in priorities, what mattered to us and what happened. And, and, you know, as a result of being separated from people was the the need and the understanding that being with people is really important for our well-being. As we found out that being separated from people, being isolated, not being able to engage with people physically, was damaging for our well-being, and we're seeing the fallout of that now. So this idea of comfort dressing was a way of enabling us to feel good in our clothes because that has a knock-on effect. This idea of mind and body as separate entities isn't, you know, has been demythed. So we are one system. Mind and body are one system. They operate together. So comfort is physical and psychological. So when we talk about comfortable clothing, we think about it physically. You know, it feels nice. It's soft. It's not making us pay attention to it. It's not pinching or or tight or or restricting in in a particular way. But we also think about comfort in terms of psychological terms. So it feels safe. We feel good when we feel comfortable. We're not threatened in any way. And this really came out during the pandemic where we were choosing textiles that felt nice. So comfort and feel are both physical and psychological. So, you know, we feel good. Something feels physically good as well. And this happened. And throughout the pandemic, we were looking for comfortable, soft fabrics. In a sense, we could kind of hug ourselves when we're wearing something soft and you know, I'm wearing uh, velour trousers now <laughs> and I'm kind of stroking them as I'm talking about this because touch is a fundamental sense for human development. They're one of the primal senses that babies, you know, we see in, in child development, how babies reach out to touch their carer and as they get older to touch an object, this feeling of security when we're holding on to something. So, yeah, through the pandemic, that came about and it's really stayed in this idea that when we feel good we look good and that and that's shown in in evidence that feeling good enables us to be confident and confidence is one of the most attractive characteristics so feeling good looking good being confident and looking good 
all these things kind of manifest when we talk about comfortable dressing. I love that. That's such a brilliant explanation. And it's also true. I can remember being in one of my roles years ago um, as an account manager and sort of being at a point where I just needed to move on for the next experience. And sitting at the showroom table one day, just thinking about it, and a girl bowled in from somewhere in the building, full of confidence and exuberance and happiness. And her confidence just hit me in the face. And I was like, oh my goodness, that's what makes the difference. It's confidence. Absolutely. So it's, yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. It's confidence. It's confidence. And, and that is so attractive to other people. And the reason why it's attractive is it puts other people at ease. Yes, it them does. It gives good. them confidence because it's exactly. infectious, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think uh, I have lots of conversations with candidates about this on a regular basis. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it's it's the number one thing that makes a difference. It does. Yeah. yeah. Your expertise extends beyond the psychological influence of what we wear. You also advise on human behaviour across the fashion industry from research methods and ethics to customer insights, sustainability, inclusion and diversity and human resources. Can you share an example from your consultancy work that demonstrates how this works in practice? Yeah, absolutely. So my main client is one of the world's largest uh, value fashion companies. And I've been working with them as a consultant for almost three years now. Working across the industry, as you described, Fiona, when I started with the company, they were using data in a way that wasn't really enabling them to provide the customer personalization that customers want. And I saw that as a wasted opportunity. But knowing that we can't just collect data, you know, at random from people, I brought forward a, a way of looking at the ethics of data collection through the psychology of trust. So I spent quite a long time with the company looking at the psychology of trust. How could we engage consumers to enable them to trust the company enough to give the data that's needed to give them the personalized experiences that customers now demand? So on one hand, we have, you know, we want personalized experiences. We want the Uh, messaging to come when we want it, where we want it, how we want it. But at the same time, we have become more untrusting about giving our data to any company because Mm. we've seen data breaches. We've obviously heard about Facebook scandal or scandals, and we're becoming a bit more wary about giving our data. But what the evidence shows is that we're more willing to give data when we get something in return that is of value to us. And so I spent a lot of time looking at the psychology of trust and the ethics of treating people well, respectfully, with integrity, allowing people to consent the information that they're prepared to give. So there are different levels. You know, to get the most efficient personalization, you need to give the most data, really, so that it can be analyzed in a way that we, we understand each customer rather than and as a group. It's a group of 20-year-olds. It's totally meaningless when we think about the individual differences of a group of 20-year-olds, even if they're 20-year-old people who identify as female from London. You know, those are still huge differences 
in that population. So we need data. So that was one example. Another example is I advise on inclusion and diversity issues. Do we train internally to be aware of, I would say, so or more aware of individual differences and respecting individual differences by understanding that their perception, our own perception, is very different from the perception of others. So we see the world from our own mindset that has been shaped by our background. And that is different. Everybody's background is different. So understanding that, that what we may see as behavior that is perfectly acceptable and even respectful may be interpreted as discriminatory or upsetting for somebody else. And this ability to hold back, perhaps, to think twice, <laughs> thoughts of things, thoughts words of have wings. Words have wings. <laughs> exactly. This is so important in this situation. I've also worked on values and culture, looking at how they can be integrated, acted on, and made to be a positive way of working in a company. Because when people have understand the purpose of their work, and the meaning of what they're doing, they find that so valuable. They become more engaged, better workers. It's a win-win and do better for the customers. So what's not to like? So those are some examples. They're brilliant. They're brilliant examples. And people feeling good and the culture within a company are not to be underestimated. And I feel, I feel like over the last 20 years, we've seen a gigantic shift in attitude and understanding, which has been very much needed, particularly within our industry, there seems to have been a real sea change of the old guard disappearing for a variety of reasons, whether it's age related, health related, retirement, whatever it might be. And, you know, new energy, new people coming through who are very fixated on creating positive, happy cultures because they themselves have experienced to their detriment, the impact of negative cultures and badly run organizations. And really, if everyone that ran a company understood how beneficial it is to run a positive culture, to really focus on the cultural aspect of people's well-being and how behavior affects people within an organization, everybody would change immediately, wouldn't they? Absolutely. I mean, all the evidence shows that having a, an engaged workforce benefits the company and its customers. And having an engaged workforce comes from this positive environment, an environment that understands its workforce and doesn't see them as numbers or doesn't Absolutely. see them as production machines or something, but as human beings yeah. who have needs and desires and actually who come to the company to engage with it. Absolutely. And after a short time, this gets kind of stamped out because people feel either, you know, worn out, burnt out or just disengaged with what they see around them. So a company that has and promotes a positive culture engages its staff and does better. And there's actually an investment piece there in making sure that people in management positions also have the skills and knowledge through workshops, through training to be able to enable 
a positive culture. And if you don't invest, regardless of the size of your business, if you don't send people on courses or workshops, you can actually do this just through workshops. You're going to make a huge difference to your organization. Who doesn't want that if they're running a company? Staff turnover is costly and disruptive and losing knowledge within a business is not always easy to replace. I always say to people, no individual, every individual is different. We all bring a unique blend of experience and you can end up losing someone in a business who happens to hold so much knowledge and experience that you can't replace them with one person. So actually, the more you focus on that cultural piece and making sure that your managers have the skills and knowledge to do their jobs well, to manage well, to manage effectively, it makes a gigantic difference. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think the training is so important. That has to be an integral part of a company right to the top. Yes, because it starts at the top. It starts at every level. Everyone, all employees need this. And it helps people. When people feel like a company cares about them, the level of work that they then bring is completely different. Yeah, completely. Yeah, And I think we've seen that through the pandemic, strangely enough, this whole sort of culture where we're, a lot of us are working from home now mm-hmm. um, and companies have had to have blind, they've been forced to have blind faith and it surprised a lot of them. And then you scratch your head and, and go, well, why are you surprised? Why don't you trust people that work yeah. for you? Exactly. So you know, you should. Why do you think that people need to be treated like school children? <laughs> no, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and you know, what we've also seen through the pandemic is this desire for self-growth, this new, well, Huge. It's not, not entirely new for everybody, but so many people started learning something. Yes. During the pandemic. Everyone has done a course. Yeah, exactly. And so we've seen all the evidence clearly shows that people want professional development at work or personal development you know whether this is and they're like mind and body these are not separate professional personal development are not two separate things you know if you introduce let's say a course on well-being in a company that we might describe as personal development but of course it impacts your professional performance and your professional development you know so the two are not separate so yeah I mean training at work super important definitely starts from the top very much so when people understand the purpose of their work they become more engaged and better workers businesses are by people for people how does psychology bring value when supporting decision making and problem solving great question (laughs) another great question Fiona well psychology is a scientific study of human behavior and because we're all human we tend to see ourselves as able to understand others. But the problem is that we understand others through our own lens, through our own worldview, through our own perspectives that have been formed because of our experiences, our background and our experiences. This is our worldview. Um, What psychology does is it doesn't project a single view. It takes a representative sample from the population of interest, and then talks in general terms. So, of course, there will be people who don't fit into what psychology says. This is behaviour, for example, because at either end we have people who do more of that behaviour and less of that behaviour. But when psychological studies and experiments are done properly, 
they are done with a sample, so a group of people who represent the, the group at hand. So if we're thinking about the fashion industry here, what's happened for decades, and still goes on in a lot of research companies, to understand the consumer, the consumers are segmented into different groups. So typically age groups, you know, millennial, Gen Z, um, or whatever, baby boomers and the other terms that people use. But actually, when we look at these categories, of course, there are similarities between them. But there are as many differences within those categories as between them. And several studies that were conducted during the pandemic showed that similar behaviours were experienced and were happening across age span, across the lifespan. So people of 18 were doing very similar things to people of 78. You know, so this idea of categorising people by age is problematic. I would also suggest that categorising people by sex is problematic as well, particularly now when we have such variations of how we identify within genders. If you want to look for something, you're going to find it. So if you're looking for gender differences, let's say traditionally men and women, you're going to find differences. But I've always argued that there is as many differences between women as there are between men and women, and possibly more. So what psychology brings to the table is understanding these nuances of behaviour. Nuances, it's not simply the demographics, you know, age, gender, these traditional ways of segmenting when we do research. But it's also psychographics. What interests people? What are their motivations? What are their expectations? What do they enjoy in life when they're not doing the, the behavior that we're interested in? So say we're interested in buying fashion and we're looking at what motivates customers to buy fashion. What we also have to look at is what motivates customers when they're not buying fashion. What other interests take their money? What are other interests take their time? So what happens quite often is people think, who are our competitors? You know, how our customers are shopping with our competitors. But competitors aren't only in the same category. Competitors are everywhere because we have, you know, finite time and money. But what engages people for their time and money? That's what we need to know. So psychology brings these additional insights when we're understanding our customers that traditional market research has tended not to do. And I'm sure, you know, things are changing as, as we become more aware of these nuances of behavior. And I'm certain, and they are, and marketing strategies are changing accordingly. And psychologists are becoming more employed in the industry too. Yeah, that's very true, actually. I think we're seeing psychologists employed in lots of industries when you look at pro sports and yeah. all sorts of other industries and the psychology behind the action and the motivation is so important. It's interesting. I was working with a Swedish company recently who had done a whole project, a whole piece with a, a research company on where do who is their customer? How do they analyze their customer? Who should they be aiming at? And they presented this whole thing that was about focused on sort of Gen Z and millennials. And actually through the process that we were working on in, in hiring pivotal role, it came, it transpired that actually it's really about interests and what yeah. connects people by interests. It's not about age. It's not about gender. It's right. just what people are into exactly. and what they love. 
And the minute you pigeonhole people by age, you're absolutely missing a trick. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Interests. Exactly. What do they Interests. love? I think this word love is really, really important. Yeah. yeah. What do people love? What engages them? Exactly. That's actually the thing you want to harness. You want to understand that. Yeah. You don't want to care about the age of the person. You just want to care about what they love to do. Which bands are they interested in? What music do they listen to? Where do they go? What's their favorite restaurant? That's the angle. Exactly. And the minute exactly. you you understand that, it it's transformative. Totally. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. What what do people love? What do they love doing? What do yeah. They, yeah. Absolutely. So my next uh, question that occurs is this. As a cognitive psychologist, you have worked extensively with global companies across groups and services, from human resources to diversity and inclusion, social and environmental sustainability and customer insights. Can you tell us how the impact of your work has helped them in their evolution? Yeah, So I would always describe what I've done as part of an effort to make a difference. So it wouldn't be just my input alone. So it's a collaborative effort. You have to have buy-in. You have to have uh, motivation to change. And this comes through groups, possibly, or teams within the companies that I work with. So it wouldn't be that I go into a company and I say, you do this, that, and the other, and suddenly I snap my fingers and it's happened. You know, so I have to go to a company, understand what they're doing, where they're at at the moment, and actually, you know, finding out that quite a lot of processes are happening, maybe not as quickly as, as they would like, or, or in areas that maybe are missing some point that psychology can help with. So I think one of the projects I worked on was trying to engage customers in looking after their clothing purchases once they bought them, looking after them better. Mm. So rather than saying, oh, recycle, reuse, take to charity shops, sell, those that kind of, how can we actually look after what we buy? So rather than this kind of idea that we buy something and get fed up with it, then we need to get rid of it in ways that can be sustainable rather than just throw away, obviously, which is terrible. But how can we buy something and stop it from falling apart, stop it from not looking great by caring for it better? You know, washing on cold, not washing it so much, spot cleaning, hanging out, you know, by a window if you don't have outside space or hanging outside if you've got outside space. Lots of different ways. But to kind of challenge this assumption that clothes that don't cost a lot of money also don't last. Because what I want to do and why I care so much about working for a global company that serves a customer who wants the cheaper end of the market is I I want my work to be accessible to millions rather than to an exclusive few who can afford to buy expensive clothes. So helping people understand, and I'm, I'm sure lots of people already do, how to look after clothes that haven't cost a fortune and help them last longer. So I think that was a project that was was successful. Yeah, no, I think that's uh, so valid, particularly at this point where we're so conscious of waste and not throwing things away. We're conscious of landfill and the impact on the planet. I think encouraging people to look after things better is, yeah, because you can have value pieces in your wardrobe that last for years at the end of the day if you look after them. 
Exactly, exactly. I mean, you do have to shop carefully, but I mean, the same is true about clothing that costs more. Yeah. The, the range of prices on the high street, the some that we describe as high street stores, are still out of the reach of the majority of customers. Yeah, yeah it's true, isn't and, it? You know, and I'm not talking about luxury here. That's a whole different category. Yeah. But, you know, the higher end, more expensive high street fashion also needs looking after carefully or it can bobble uh, seams come apart it can get misshapen just like the very you know cheaper ends yeah it's true it's you know making sure you're following the care instructions yeah. and not cheating because often you don't really get a second chance when you cheat and you put it on the wrong wash yeah <laughs> it's yeah. finished <laughs> yeah. yes so how can brands stay ahead in complex dynamic environments where consumers are increasingly more knowledgeable and more demanding? Well, they have to speak to and listen to their customers. And there are multiple ways they can do this. Of course, they can do surveys, collect data that way. They can use their online systems to collect data when their customers are shopping from them. They can also use social listening tools to analyze data that's on social networks and social sites. These are available through different companies, and companies can also use that, have that expertise within their companies. Uh, they could look at reviews to learn, you know, what, what people are loving and what people are not loving about their brands. So lots of ways that we can listen to customers that don't mean actually in our physical ears. You know, we can hear what's going on. There's so much out there, so much data that's been left. Companies can have their own group, sort of the group who will be always on hand to answer questions they may have. This needs to be ongoing because customers are making demands for brands now that brands have to address. And we've seen this so much with the sustainability agenda, how that's been hanging around for decades on the periphery, but again, accelerated through the pandemic, giving people this time to think and reflect what's happening in the world. And also at the time of the pandemic, we saw terrible, you know, climate changes, you know, floods and wildfires and hurricanes and cyclones, all these things going on in the world that are worse. Each time it happens, it's worse than has ever happened before. It's more frequent than has ever happened before. And people are waking up and today is the start of the COP conference. So it's it's really important that the brands listen because consumers have more information, so they're making greater demands, but they also have more demands on transparency of brands. Brands have to be able to show that they are meeting these demands and not just saying it, but actually doing it. They have to walk the talk. Absolutely, they do. And understand that consumers understand that it's also an evolving picture, that not all the pieces of the puzzle are in place at the moment, but if people can see that companies are making an effort towards something and they're they're making shifts as and when and, and how they can, depending on their supply chain, that's what people want to see and engage with. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then you take people on the journey with you, don't you? Exactly. And I think it's really important that consumers engage with companies in a way that they need to spend some time 
finding the information that's out there. And I think companies could make this more available, more accessible, more straightforward so that when we find this information, it's not a 100-page document, for example. It's something which is succinct and we can see what changes are they putting in place. But I, I think the issues around sustainability are complex and we can't just say, you know, stop buying things. I'm all for saying, personally, I need never buy anything else again, probably, you know, because I have enough clothes in my wardrobe, but they will wear out sometimes. So I do have to buy something. But I, for one, buy carefully. And I think that's what we can say to people, buy carefully. The companies are changing, for sure, because of demands that have taken place over the last few years and because of developments in material science. Absolutely, which are... um... So impressive. And uh, if people want to hear a bit about that, they can listen to um, my previous podcast. So, yes, it's so important. With all your knowledge and insights, what do you most love about fashion? Well, I love fashion because it enables us to kind of change how we portray who we are. Because what we wear is an expression of who we are. When we change what we're wearing, We change the impression of of who we are. And I love that fashion enables us to do this in a way. It's where we put on a a costume, if you like. You know, it's it's a way of changing who we are. And I love that fashion can also be a real boost for how we feel. Fashion can make us feel great. Fashion can enable us to feel confident in a way, you know, when it fits us. When When we look in the mirror and we think, yeah, do you know this? I love the look of this. I feel a different person in this. I can remember buying something. I was uh, overseas a few years back and I bought a coat in a store and it wasn't a super expensive coat, but it was very nice and lovely fabric. And when I put it on, I felt like a film star. (laughs) It was a transformation. I remember saying in the store, I want to keep this on. (laughs) Take the the price tag out. I'm going to wear this now. I'm walking out and feeling so fantastic. You know, it was like a magic moment. So I love that fashion has this power to for positivity, for well-being. And this is one of the reasons why I wanted to engage with fashion as a psychologist in the first place, was to help it realize its potential as a vehicle for good. It's something that touches everyone. Fashion touches everyone more than any other industry, really, because we all wear clothes. And it has this fantastic potential for good. And at the time when I was really bringing psychology to fashion, there were multiple issues in the fashion industry. And of course, you know, there are, as in every industry, there are issues ongoing. But many of the issues that were outstanding and and I would say quite shocking at the time are being addressed or have been addressed in a way that is so positive. You know, of course, there's more work to do. But I do believe the industry is changing for the better in so many ways through customer demands, through political issues that have happened over the years and because of the pandemic. You know, through the desire of people as well. The people want to see change and different generations have different expectations. I see a lot of that. And people want to work in positive environments. They want to feel empowered. They want to work with businesses that engage with them on a personal level and appreciate what they do, where there's opportunity for progression and contribution and that that's recognised. 
Yeah. And there is demand across the industry for that, for sure. Exactly. And I think exactly. probably not just this industry. And those workers, those employees, those colleagues in the industry are also consumers. That's right. They and are. Consumers want to shop from a company that's like minded. That's good. Yeah. It's a complete cultural shift, actually, yeah. in society. Yeah. Very exciting. Very exciting. Very, Very exciting. exciting. And lovely to be a part of. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I feel so privileged in what I do. Absolutely. I'm sure it's so I mean I could talk to you forever as you know so (laughs) fashion presents um, freedom of imagination often driven by instinct and gut feel for where we look for for look fit and function and how those come together how does fashion psychology fit into the picture as you mentioned in the introduction Fiona the, the term fashion psychology has been kind of taken on by stylists Yes. Use the term to describe how fashion can make us feel good, how fashion can change our mood. And it can. I mean, this is what I just described to you when I bought that coat, how it it made me feel like a film star. But that isn't really what I do. So this is why I prefer the term psychology in fashion, of fashion, for fashion. And it's much more about understanding that the power of fashion comes from the person. So this, I wanted to feel like a film star when I put that coat on. My expectations were that buying this coat would make me feel good. And what we've learned recently from psychology is that expectations shape perceptions. So when we expect something to happen, we perceive it as happening in that way. So for example, when we expect something to turn out fantastically, we approach it with that mindset that it's going to turn out really well. If we approach something with the expectation that it's going to be negative, it's going to be difficult, it'll be awkward, that's how we experience it. So expectations are super important. So you know, stylists have a fantastic role to play, and I think they do a, a great job in boosting people's self-esteem. The power of that comes from the individual and the stylist who work together to find this fit and style and a look that makes the person feel great. How psychology would bring that to the table would they would look more broadly at in general behavior, in general behavior, looking at, for example, how sizing is problematic for people in general. Let's say we consider ourselves a size 10 and we go to a store and we can't fit into this size 10 because it doesn't fit us. And we then have to go and get a size 12. Well, of course, the size 12 is fine. But in our culture, we're always expected to be smaller. Having to buy the next size up can make some people, not all people, obviously, but some people feel bad. So psychology for fashion would look at the problem of sizing. How can we get sizing to be the same across brands? It's not even across brands, within brands. And one of the reasons that I learned, you know, since working with the industry is that items, and this is probably a value fashion issue, that items when they're cut, the pieces of the fabrics are cut in thousands 
So there's a machine that cuts a thousand pieces. And clearly the piece at the top is not going to be the same shape as the piece at the bottom of that pile. This is why there's variation in fit. So sizing is one problem, fit is another. And when we only see images of perfection, and I'm doing inverted commas here, we can feel not good about ourselves because of the imagery that we see is always perfect, you know, perfect fitting. And we can look in like even stores and we see that actually the items are pinned behind the uh, mannequin. mannequin. Yes, yes, always. They've got staples or pins in them because yes. it doesn't actually fit like that. And I, I think these kind of vulnerabilities, this is what I, as a psychologist, would want to bring out, that people are vulnerable. We're all vulnerable to these things. Let's think about size and fit. How can we make this better? How can we make sizing unilateral. Of course, it doesn't matter. You're still the same size, whether you're buying a 10 or a 12. But psychologically, that has an impact on us. And, you know, I mean, we see the same with with larger or smaller sizes that many of the brands don't cater for the majority of the people, in fact. And we think that the average size is size 14. It's so true. And both you and I are quite petite people and we both have the same challenges. For example, I couldn't shop in M&S. Everything's too big on me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> everything's too long on me everywhere. I have to. Yeah, everything's too long on me everywhere. I go to Spanish brands because they, they cater more for petite people. <laughs> yeah, great idea. Great idea. <laughs> I mean, I used to shop children children's clothes. Wow. Get the size. Yeah. Yes, I can imagine that. I, I get the that. crop jeans or crop trousers that are sort of proper length on me. Yes. Jeans and trousers are so problematic when you're small because everything's on an average and it just well, doesn't accommodate people either side. I think the trousers are usually on a tour. Yes, I tend to find that too. Absolutely. And also body measurements as well. Yeah. So are often problematic. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, but I mean, that's changing as well when we think mm. about virtual try on that is coming out yes. more and more. Um, yes. how we can get, because I'm quite short from my armpit to my waist. Yes. I'm no. quite short from my waist to my hip. Me too. Um, so, yeah, so when I used to make my clothes, I used to be able to make those alterations in those parts. Yes, um, you can take an inch out and, and yeah, it exactly. suddenly. And yeah. with actually, with 3D technology, I think we're going to get to a point where you'll be able to actually buy things that fit your body measurements. Companies exactly. will have your body measurements already. Yeah. Places you like shopping will have your body measurements yeah. and they'll actually be able to produce things that are bespoke to you. Yeah, well, that exists actually. Weekday, you know, I'm mm. they, yeah. they will make you jeans uh, that are fitted to your body uh, perfectly. That's the way the industry is going to go. It's brilliant. Definitely going to go, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. That's the future of fashion, actually. Yeah, for sure. And then we eliminate waste. We eliminate people yeah. buying things they only wear twice. Yeah. It's, a, it's a complete game changer. And the technology is improving and growing and getting better. It will become mainstream before Absolutely. Long. Yeah. Absolutely. Very interesting to watch, watch the whole thing unfold, that's for sure. And that kind of brings us to our, my closing question, believe it or not, which is this. 
if you could hire any three people in the world to lend their expertise to your business, your consultancy, who would you choose and why? And it can be absolutely anyone. All right, Fiona, I would start with you. Me? Again? <laughs> I would start with you because you would be brilliant in hiring on and making my business like super successful. So, yeah, because I don't have your expertise in knowing who does what and who does a great job of doing what. Oh, yeah. My I last would... guest said me and I am I was kind of blown away. I oh, wasn't expect... Yeah, no one's done that before. I was kind of like, wow, really? <laughs> wow, there you go. Thank you yeah, so much. I'm very yeah, honoured. Because you have like unique insights, but not only in the industry, obviously, but also who you could bring beyond you. I would also employ, this is a tricky one, but I would employ a fantastic designer. Anyone in particular? Oh, I think I would do some scouting around for somebody new, somebody who's graduated with some really different designs. Yeah, a different way of thinking about people, more futuristic maybe than we actually see. Oh, yeah. And this will be my third person. So not some. And you would all work together. But my third person would be a material scientist. My third person would be somebody who creates materials from polymers or natural waste. So we'll have to get hold of Lisa Miller then. That's who we need for that. Yeah. She was one of my previous guests. Right. And uh, she's been doing some consultancy with Lululemon. And she, uh, her expertise in polymers is amazing. So, yeah, Lisa Miller, I think we will probably need there. We'll have her and then we'll go to the, we'll scout around the best design. Look for a designer. Yeah, absolutely. Fun. Something like really out there, something different, something, something we haven't seen before. Because I see a lot of designers and I love lots of stuff that's coming out. It's a regurgitation. Yes. Of what we've seen before. There's a maybe, lot of repetition. I want to see something like, wow. Yeah, something different. Yeah, I see that occasionally through the work I do. Great. So mm, there we are. There we are. Fantastic. Thank you so much. It has been incredibly insightful. We're going to do another two of these for the audience listening. So there will be more knowledge and insights to come. But thank you for today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Oh, same for me, Fiona. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. It has been educational and fascinating talking with Professor Carolyn Mayer today. If you enjoyed this episode, join me next time when I will be speaking with another inspiring guest. And if you are enjoying the series, hit the subscribe button to receive notifications on upcoming episodes where you'll get to hear firsthand insights from across the global fashion and creative industries. Mm-hmm.